Welcome to the Behind the Glass podcast, where we are face-to-face discussing biblical topics that are relevant today. Join us for interviews, discussions, and musings that will bring laughter and enlightenment. For now, all you have to do is sit back, relax, and step behind the glass. Today we're going to be talking about apostolic church history. Um, So we're going to be starting in the book of Acts and maybe even before that and discussing where did this church come from. Um, Sometimes we're viewed as maybe something that's popped up in the 1900s or something like that. And so we'll look at we'll look to see if that has um, any truth to it or if we come from the Bible as any church uh, existing in today should come. So. Isaiah, if you'd like, if you could kind of just give us a little bit of introduction to where did this um, apostolic church come from um, and what constitutes a true church? How did it operate? Well, Jonathan, uh, you know, as we look in the Bible, we, of course, read um, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which testifies of the life of Jesus Christ and his works and what he commanded his disciples to do. We find then in the book of Acts the creation or the inception of the church. In fact, the New Testament really begins in the book of Acts. Contrary to popular belief, although Jesus um, brought or ushered in a New Testament, um, you know, the, the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit, which we're going to get into signifies the New Testament because, of course, the testator has then died, who is Jesus Christ, yet he was risen, and so that's why we have life today. So when we go back into the book of Acts, we first must begin with um, the day of Pentecost, which, of course, we could read in the very beginning in the book of Acts. But what happened was phenomenal, of course, the outpouring of the Spirit. But there's something that we need to go over before we get to that, and that was in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. This is a prophecy that God had spoke through Ezekiel of the outpouring of the Spirit, and I'll read that. Starting in verse 24, chapter 36, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them, and ye shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. So the Lord is speaking here in the book of Ezekiel about a time that is coming in the future in which he will put a new spirit within man, and it will be a covenant that he establishes with his people. And this is what we see in the book of Acts. It is the creation of the church, and um, what we what we really see then is on the day of Pentecost, those that were gathered were obeying the words of Jesus Christ when he told them in Luke that they were to tarry or wait in Jerusalem for the promise. What is the promise? 
it was the salvation message that we find in Acts 2.38. That's, that's great stuff there. And so this message that's prophesied of old, not only do we see it prophesied, as you mentioned in Ezekiel, it's again prophesied of concerning in Joel, um, which Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost. And then you have Jesus during his lifespan referring to things that are to come. So you mentioned in Luke where they were told to go wait for the promise of the Father. Um, and that's the setting that we see in Acts chapter 1. We also see in Matthew 16 where there's this key figure um, in the outpouring of the Holy Ghost that enters, not enters the stage, but is established in Matthew 16, verse 18, when Jesus tells Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail, prevail against it. So we have these building blocks that are becoming to be set into place and then we finally get to Acts chapter 1 where we see these people, Jesus descended into heaven, and then we see these people, the disciples um, and some of their family members and others, assembled waiting for this promise of the Father. In Acts 1.8, we see a key verse that Jesus says, but ye shall receive power after that that the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost has not been poured out yet, so what is that? And so we, we see that he says, The Holy Ghost shall be poured out, and he shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So they're going to go and evangelize, and we see that throughout the book of Acts. But the Holy Ghost, what is that? Uh, explain to us a little bit that, what that is and where it's established in the book of Acts. Well, the Holy Ghost is the spirit of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus told his disciples that, uh, he was with them, but that he would eventually be in them. Um, that's a very powerful understanding because we then understand that the Holy Ghost is not a third person of a Trinitarian Godhead as much as the uh, denominational world and others propagate. But in fact, it's actually God uh, dwelling inside of his people. Um, we find various allusions to this um, as uh, the tabernacle of God is with men. That is something that the Bible talks about. And so God literally dwells among his people, but also inside of his people. And he does that through his spirit. What we find then in Acts 2 is the conversion of 3,000 souls. It was the first time that anybody had been converted in the New Testament. Um, we don't see a sinner's prayer um, as popularized by those such as Billy Graham and others. I'm not uh, singling him out. But there are just various people that have propagated that type of doctrine as being salvational. But we don't see that in the Bible. Uh, we don't find a, sacra a sacramental order as uh propagated by the Catholic Church. We don't, we're not told of any infant baptisms or anything like that. What we find is the real deal in Acts 2, 22 through 24. And so what I would like to do um, in just a little while is go through a few of the various conversion experiences throughout the book of Acts. And what we find in a conversion is in Acts 2, uh, verse 38, is repentance, or turning away from sin, um, being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the washing away or remission of sins, and then this promise that Jesus spoke of, the promise of the Father, the promise of the Spirit. We need the Spirit 
to overcome sin. We need the power of God to live for God. And, and furthermore, we need, we need the Holy Ghost to be resurrected um, at the last day and for, for us to receive glorified bodies. So the, the Holy Ghost is absolutely essential. Absolutely. Yes, that promise uh, in verse 39, for the promise is unto you, to your children, to all that are far off. It definitely was not something that happened in Acts chapter 2 and on that day of Pentecost that was going to be just held on that day only and that was going to be the end of it. It was something that was for all generations afterwards. So we see Peter, again, I mentioned him uh, being referenced in Matthew 16 with Jesus saying, upon this rock I'll build my church. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Ghost is poured out, which we just went over, who do we see? We see Peter. Uh, Peter stands up on that day, um, and he quotes the Old Testament. Joel um, is referenced in, in the beginning part of his message, and then he quotes parts of Psalms, etc., and then he gets to that key reference that you pointed out, 238, Acts 238, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And so, as I mentioned, as I started this, the promise was not just for that moment, but in 239, it was for their children and to all that are far off, so for future generations as well. And so then we, the Holy Ghost, did it just end there? No, let's go and talk about some of these um, conversion experiences that we want to go over. So I think a good spot to go would be um, Acts chapter 8. Um, go to Philip. And how, how did it go down with Philip and the, and the eunuch? Well, what we, what we find in the book of Acts is God's spirit everywhere, and, and it's all over. And the various conversions are followed. Oftentimes, it's illustrated or um, documented that they were filled with the Holy Ghost. When they were filled, they spoke in tongues. Um, tongues is the initial sign or evidence that someone has received the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. And, and so when we're talking about the history of the church, what we're talking about is the history of the church from when it started, what happened when it started, well, we see the baptism of the Spirit, and that is when uh, someone receives the Spirit. So in Acts chapter 8, we, we observe the conversion of the Samaritans in verses 5 through 15. Um, the mode of baptism, as was always witnessed in the book of Acts, was baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's referenced as baptism in the name of the Lord. But in conjunction with this uh, water baptism experience, they were also baptized in the Holy Ghost. So Acts 20, I'm sorry, Acts 8, 26 to 36, the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch occurred when Philip baptized this eunuch. And what is interesting about this is this eunuch seemed to have a, a desire for God, a love for God. And um, God sent Philip to this eunuch to show him the way more perfectly to open up his eyes so to speak to to the truth and to this new revelation really is what it was um, you also find this uh, this type of sincerity in the eunuch with people such as Cornelius in the book of Acts um, there was also an instance when Paul um, asked 
these, uh, these people, um, how they were baptized. And they said, well, we were baptized under John's baptism. But that wasn't good enough. Why? Because a new revelation had come about baptism in Jesus' name. So we, we, find, uh, we find this throughout the book of Acts, and, uh, and especially in, in Acts uh, 8, 26-36, a beautiful illustration of, of the salvation of this Ethiopian eunuch. What's interesting about this, um, well, a couple things are interesting. One is, when you go, we're talking about apostolic history here. And when you go to the definition of apostolic, um, I had it just up in front of me and I just went away from it, but I'm pulling it up again. The definition would be apostle-like, what the apostles taught in Acts, the doctrine of the twelve. Well, if there's any doctrine that I'd want to follow, it'd be something that came from as close to Jesus as possible, that originated with Jesus, rather than something that was created years later by other people um, which we'll reference in our next podcast. This is as close to Jesus as you can get, and you can see that by his spirit being poured out in Acts chapter 8 and in other chapters. Another interesting thing to note is that right before, and we'll get back to the conversions in a minute, but right before this conversion experience in chapter 8 of the eunuch, in chapters 4 and in chapter 7, we see the church beginning to become persecuted. Um, in chapter 4, it was immediately after Peter and John, they were on their way to the temple. They prayed for a man. He was healed. And this was like, whoa, what just happened here? And so the, the rulers that were uh, in the city, they go and they go and they try, put Peter and John on trial. And Peter and John are put in jail. And they go through this uh, big ordeal there. And then in Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen, he gets confronted, and it would actually lead to Stephen dying for this truth. And it's interesting, and again, it gets worse and worse as time goes, um, and obviously now it's not as bad as it was then, though there is persecution going on. Um, but immediately, when there is something that's different from what everybody else at that time was teaching and preaching, and followed the lines of Jesus, which they had a problem with a little bit. As, as uh, we, If we went through the Gospels, we could see that, that immediately there's persecution that begins. I think that's something really interesting to note. So let's keep on going with this convert these conversions. So if you want to go to the next one that you want to talk about. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to get to the conversion of Cornelius in depth um, a little further. But one thing I want to want to mention is because you had, you had mentioned the doctrine of the twelve or the or the apostles, um, we we find that that's very important um, because in Acts ten thirty nine, Peter is speaking and he says, and we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God, him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. So Peter is establishing 
the authority of the apostles in that they were the ones who ate with Jesus. They prayed with Jesus. They learned from uh, the teachings of Jesus. And they were commanded by him to preach doctrine. What is doctrine? It's the truth. It's not just something that they created. Absolutely not. And it wasn't something that was made up or contrived by their, their own human intelligence or by um, errors of, of past wrongs that, that was given to them by other men. These, these, were, these were commandments straight from God. Uh, so that's very important, very, very important to note as we go on um, to discover what happened with these conversions. Absolutely. So in Acts chapter 10, there's been a sub storyline that I've tried to create a little bit with Peter. So in Acts chapter 10, that uh, storyline comes back into play um, as Peter is the one that is now uh, perceived as the one that would be the first one that would bring the gospel to the Gentiles in the story of Cornelius. We have Cornelius who was, as the Bible puts, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house. Um, so, and it also says that he prayed to God always. So he has some religious background, but he sees that there's something that he's missing. He sees this through a, through a vision. Um, and so eventually he's led to go and find um, Peter um, through this vision. He's led to go to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname was Peter. The Lord told uh, Cornelius where you could, where he would be able to find Simon Peter, and also the Lord shows a vision to Peter that he should go ahead and bring this gospel to the Gentiles. And so, um, let's go to they go and they meet. So let's jump down to where they actually Peter gets to preach it. Well, you find in uh, in verse forty four, it says, "While Peter yet spake these words." talking of what he had just spoke in verse 20, uh, I'm sorry, verse 42 and 43 about being commanded by Jesus Christ to preach the, the gospel. It says here in verse 44, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues, and magnify God. And then it says, Then Peter answered, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. They prayed, they him, to, the, to tarry certain days. So the conversion of Cornelius was a milestone. It really was because um, the Jews were expecting something. They may have not have known exactly what, but as we read in um, Ezekiel, this prophecy of, of this gift, which Jesus also spoke of, um, it, was, it was geared towards, first, the house of Israel, which we find in the book of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. But it wasn't until the Holy Ghost began to spread or be poured out onto the Gentiles that really um, things began to change. Of course, these uh, heathen or the pagan nations, um, for them to receive such a precious thing was, was very shocking to many of the Jews. And so uh, the salvation of Cornelius was huge. I mean, it, it absolutely revolutionized 
the whole world as we are partakers of that today. Absolutely. Yeah, the, that, to the account of the Jews and the Gentiles, there'd be nearly books but letters written in the Bible that would have to go and address some of the conflicts or disputes that would arise in the church over it. Even in, I'm drawing a blank, but Acts chapter 6, I believe it is, um, there is some address that goes on even in that chapter concerning some of the disputes that would uh, arise between those two sides, those two demographics. So again, we see Peter, as mentioned in Acts chapter 10, so he was there when Jesus established upon this rock. He was there on the day of Pentecost. He was there when the gospel would get to the Gentiles, and then he kind of fades into the background, and we see a character that pops up in Acts chapter 9. He begins to uh, come onto the scene by storm, and that's Paul. So Paul was a persecutor of the Jews. In Acts chapter 9, he was on the way to, on his way to persecute the Jews, and he has this conversion experience. And then the reason why he disappears, though, is because he's out in the desert getting this revelation from God. And crazily enough, he goes and he comes back to Jerusalem. He comes back to the apostles and he talks with Peter. And their testimonies match up exactly the same as Paul would write about in Galatians. And so then after that point, then Paul begins to go and evangelize and become a missionary to um, the world as they knew it at that time. What's fascinating is from the time of Paul's conversion, it doesn't take very long for Paul to get started with his new uh, zeal and passion for God because we find in the book of Acts in chapter 16, we observe the conversion of Lydia Again, baptism was a very essential element, as it is in salvation, to her soul. But then we also find the conversion of the jailer, which is a very interesting story, that Paul and Silas, because of their dynamic preaching and their passion for God, God began to use them mightily. And after Paul had cast out the spirit of divination from the woman, Um, Of course, this upset her masters. We could call this maybe a modern-day witch doctor or um, one that would maybe, if you you were to call it uh, a fortune teller, something of that nature. She was making lots of money for her masters. Of course, when Paul shook that up and uh, began to impact her, her, uh, her business, um, it really caused some anger. And because of that, they threw Paul and Silas into jail. We know the story that they began to pray and praise the Lord in jail to the extent that God performed a miracle and uh, caused an earthquake to free them. This jailer, almost suicidal, was about to kill himself, um, encountered what would change his life forever and his eternity. And that was Paul and Silas. What did they do? They preached the gospel to them. What was the gospel? It was repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. A very powerful experience for this jailer. The Bible says that he, as well as his entire house, was converted. I mean, I mean, Paul literally 
took this and ran with it. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Yes, the first jail ministry, <laughs> um, and that and actually Paul would have a very strong jail ministry um, as he, he would spend a lot of time in jail and write letters and stuff. It is amazing. Um, it's amazing that this wasn't against a a doctrine that had to be confined to one person, but it's the same message, same results that would be preached by another person and there would be other people that that would help Paul out and things like that and also the power of the gospel message because as you mentioned this jailer his life is literally hanging in the balances he would rather end it then than to have to face his boss um, and have it ended at that point most likely but the power of God was so strong that it was able to change the direction of his life. And that's the same experience that we have today. You could testify to that. And there's others. There's mult. It's not others. There's a multitude of others. There's tons of people that could testify to that life changing message that is still happening today. And that is one reason why we know our, our message. It originates back then. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just to touch on a, a couple other points, and this is something obviously that when we're speaking of these conversions, it's really going to be important that uh, the listeners study it out um, and follow up. And that's really the intention of this podcast. But we find in, uh, in Acts 17, the conversion of Dionysius and Demarius. In Acts 18, the powerful conversion of Apollos um, Apollos was a very skilled and learned man in the scriptures, but he only knew the baptism of John. That was the baptism unto repentance. And uh, I, I, really, I really think this clarifies the importance of baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues because in Acts 19, it says here in verse 4, then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we see a rebaptism. Um, the baptism of John was not good enough because you have to be buried with him in baptism, as Paul talks about. Um, in the book of Romans, but it says here in verse 6, And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. So here we find that Apollos came into a powerful experience with God, um, and he was hungry for God, as was Cornelius um, and, and many others, that we find the sincerity of their heart their hunger for God leads them to a deeper relationship and true biblical salvation. Absolutely. It matters. It matters how your conversion experience happens. Otherwise, you're not truly converted. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time now. So I'll, I'm going to say a couple things and then I'll turn it back to you, to Isaiah, for your closing remarks. Um, but throughout this, we also do use some resources that we'll go ahead and give links to down in the notes portion. Um, and so some of the resources that we use for this is the Apostolic History Outline that was put together by uh, Marvin Arnold. Uh, we also used The Way Called Heresy by Thomas Weiser. 
Um, and I believe there's some other ones as well. And we're actually in our second episode, we'll actually give a spot for each person that's there to uh, recognize a resource that they really call handy. So we want this, it was referenced by Brother Isaiah, that we want this to not only you to be able to glean something from these, this 30 minutes, this 35 minutes, but also to be able to study this out because there's no way we could cover every single important aspect. Um, it does take some time. So we also want to provide you with some resources to do that. So Isaiah, turn it over back to you, just kind of your closing remarks on this. Well, I think we need to remember if this is the, the last uh, part of this segment that we leave in our minds is the church from the beginning, from the book of Acts, has not changed. Um, we find in Acts 14, 16 through 18, it, it, it states, Who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness. So there has always been a witness of God on the earth. And that is, God's witness is in his church. We find in Matthew 16, as you had talked about, Brother Jonathan, with um, Peter, and how uh, the Lord had given him the keys to the kingdom, and upon this rock, or upon the revelation of God in Christ, in this gospel, that he would build his church, that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. The gates of hell have not prevailed against the church, and today they are not prevailing against the church, and they never have, and they never will. So the idea that sometimes comes across that the church is being restored through Luther, through Calvin, through these various men is not true. Um, and we get into this more, I think, in our next lesson about the history of the church and, um, and, and various examples and instances in which God had oneness, apostolic, uh, holiness-minded believers throughout, throughout all time uh, since the day of Pentecost. So it's, that's very exciting. I'm looking forward to getting into that next lesson. Absolutely. Kind of put you on the spot here, man. But next, like, so next episode, we're going to be going into um, Azusa Street a little bit. But what are your thoughts on Azusa Street? Some people say that's where it all started. What, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I think Azusa Street was certainly a, a powerful uh, demonstration of God's spirit on the earth in perhaps a more dynamic or visible way as in the past, meaning um, God has always had a church. There have always been people on this earth that carried the Acts to 38 message. But I really think that what you had um, in the mid-1800s, even before that, with some of the holiness revivals, um, is a deep hunger for God from a multitude of people. It has been said that Azusa Street would have never happened if they wouldn't have prayed and fasted for seven years or more. I mean, you had a group of people that really wanted more of God, and God showed himself mighty, and he poured out his spirit in a mighty way, and, um, of course, that spread. That's consistent and with the day of Pentecost, to cut you off. Absolutely. But, yeah, that spread, as you were mentioning. Um, so 
that's awesome. I'm excited to talk more about Azusa Street next lesson with Pastor. That's going to be a great time. We'll also cover what we uh, consider the Dark Ages um, from 100 AD to not quite present day. Hopefully I'm not in the Dark Ages, but a few hundred years before now. Um, but that's good stuff there. So we hope that you've enjoyed this episode um, or this podcast. If you have a question that you would like to be covered sometime, send us a message. We'd love to hear it. Um, but with all that, I think we're signing off now. Got anything else to say, Isaiah? I don't, but I look forward to the next episode. God bless. Absolutely. God bless.